And so uh, again, today, we're gonna be in Isaiah 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, um, all scriptures will be up on the screen. And what's happening at this period of time in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah is a prophet. He's also the author of the book of Isaiah, and this takes place about 730 years before the birth of Christ, so before Christmas Day. 730 years. At this time, the Assyrian people, the empire is rising, um, and they're, they're, in the dominant, they're the dominant nation and empire at the time, and Israel is under their oppression. They're running from the Assyrians. The Assyrians are, are the bullies of the whole region at this period of time back then. And Isaiah is an amazing prophet. Um, commentators and theologians divide prophets into major and minor. I don't think the minor prophets would be very happy about us calling a minor, but Isaiah is a major prophet, and he's got a lot to say in just some of the most powerful prophecies in the entire Bible. Isaiah 9-6 is very well known uh, for being a prophecy that points straight to Jesus, the character of Jesus, and um, really what we're going to be celebrating all this week in light of Christmas. I'm gonna read Isaiah 9-6, and the people back then may have taken this as a prophecy um, for an immediate redeemer and someone coming to the rescue back then, but little did they know that this prophecy was pointing to the ultimate solution to all problems, Jesus. So Isaiah 9-6 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So last week, Pastor Nick um, tackled Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Again, it was amazing. If you weren't here, make sure you check that out on our YouTube um, channel, and um, I truly will bless you immensely. What I wanna say uh, that he did not, maybe did not cover last week, and he covered a lot in that intro that, thank you, so I don't have to go through all the history and everything, it was amazing, truly. But uh, one of the things I wanna say is this. The central event of Christmas, the central event of Christmas, is the fact that Jesus was given. Now, I, I want you to really pay attention to that wording, because that's what we see in Isaiah 9, 6. Did Jesus come? Yes, so we might say, and it's fine to say this, the central piece of Christianity and Christmas is that Jesus came to this world. Yes, that's true. But if you wanna go deeper theologically to really understand what Christmas really is, we point to Isaiah 9, 6, that a son was given a gift by God the Father. That fact shows that there's sacrifice involved, a sacrifice, a gift, and we cannot, we cannot forget that Christmas is founded on the greatest gift, the gift from God the Father giving his one and only son to us as a means of salvation. So today I wanna look at the second two names in that passage, the third and fourth names, and the first one that I wanna look at today is Everlasting Father. So if you're taking notes, number one is Everlasting Father. These are the characteristics of Jesus in a prophecy 730 years before Jesus would ever be born. And what's so amazing is he so perfectly fulfilled this in his life and through his death and still fulfilling these today. Again, Isaiah 9, 6 says, and he will be called Everlasting Father. This is not a reference to God the Father. Yes, God the Father is real, 
and he has attributes of being a father as well. But this is not a reference to God the Father because although there is the Trinity, three in one, there are three persons, right? Three persons in the one Trinity and this is the person of Jesus Christ and this is a description, a characteristic of the Son that he is father-like but not only a father, a perfect father, but an everlasting father. So this is not um, something, not a title, it's his nature, right? It's showing who he is. He's not God the Father, but he is, his nature is being fatherly. He is fatherly in love and care, he's fatherly in his goodness and compassion, it's his character. He acts toward us as a good father and really sets the standard as a perfect father. If you ever wanna look at the Gospels again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that chronicle his life and ministry and death, if you ever wanna go back and look at that with a fresh new angle, look at Jesus as a father, as a standard for being a father when you go back through the Gospels, and it's pretty remarkable because he lives out exactly the characteristics in his disciples and friendships and every encounter with people, how a father would behave if in fact they were his children. So he's a perfect father. He's always there, he's never too busy, never preoccupied, or never disinterested in the life of his child. I, I know today, no matter what I say about father, we will for sure have a tendency to look at this characteristic of Jesus as a father through the lens of our earthly definition of father. Our father, a grandfather, whatever it might be, lack of a father, whatever your story is, we have to fight the tendency to see Jesus being put into the box of whatever definition we have in this life. Because people will fail us, earthly fathers, as good as an earthly father you might have had, they still are not going to be the perfect father. Jesus is a provider, protector, and he's gonna do these things forever. He's never going to abandon us. I wrote this down, he's the always interested God. He's the always interested God. Now, me being an earthly father, I have four kids, and if I, I, there's no way, if I saw my kids struggling, or if I saw one of my kids going off the deep end or doing something, then I'm just gonna look at them, if they're really struggling in life, and maybe got in a season, rebellion, running away from God, whatever, I'm not gonna look at my kids and say, hey, you're not gonna be worth my time until you get your life right. You're not gonna be worth my time. Now that's not what a good and loving father would do, and that's not what I would do, and hopefully if you're a father that's in here, that's not what you would do, and if you're a future father, please don't ever do that. Because what we see with Jesus is even when we're struggling and running from him, he's still running after us, not with judgment, but with mercy. Yes, fathers instruct. Every conversation Jesus had with his disciples was not like talking to a teddy bear. If you've ever thought Jesus was just this guy that was perfectly nice all the time, you're not reading the Bible. Because Jesus is the definition of love, but he was not afraid to correct people and neither should earthly fathers be, but he's always interested and he's always involved. My kids don't need less of me, my kids always need more of me, always. And it's the same way with God. A couple weeks ago, my oldest daughter, Avery, uh, it was about 11 p.m. at night, and Mandy and I knew she was on her way home. She was on this side of town, we live on the other side of town, and I was about to go to bed. I'm in there, just sitting on the edge of the bed, you know, just doing the bedtime routine or whatever, and Mandy comes in, because I was getting up early the next morning to study, she comes in and she goes, oh, Avery just broke down on I-40. And I was like, what do you mean, where at? And she's like, where, where did you break down, Avery? And Avery says, well, it's somewhere near Santa Fe Street. Santa Fe Street. 
what's Santa Fe Street? And we're like, what's Santa Fe Street? What does she see? And she's like, well, I see this hotel. And I'm like, Santa Fe, it's not Santa Fe Street, Mandy. It's the exit, Santa Fe, north. Like our daughter doesn't know that that's an exit and not a street, <laughs> whatever. So I get in my car and I'm running and she's on the shoulder of I-40. And that, and that just makes you like freak out as a dad. And your daughter's stranded on the shoulder of an interstate. It's late at night, it's freezing cold and I'm driving and I'm calling her. And what I want to do, what I want to do on the phone is, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? Why is it broken down? But I don't know, but that's what you wanna do, right? But I'm like, I'm not doing that because the first thing that's on my mind is my daughter is alone at 11 p.m. on the side of the road on the interstate and I am gonna drive as fast as I possibly can with my hazards on and come to the rescue, whatever. So I get, I know nothing about cars anyway, so what am I gonna, I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get there and be like, bong, bong, all right, let's call somebody, you know, like, I don't know what I'm gonna do but I get there and finally we figure out a way to roll it down the hill and get it into the, the street. But I tell you this to say, when my daughter calls, any of my kids, but especially if you have daughters, if you're a dad, especially, my boys call, I'm there, but they just, you know, but if it's a daughter, she goes, dad, like, what is it? I'll do anything, you know, like, and I, I just raced there. And when I'm writing this message, that's what's in my mind when we're struggling, whether we did something or not. That's not God's first concern. His first concern is, Jesus' first concern is, my child needs me. He is the everlasting Father. You know, when we receive Christ, I think it's so perfect how the Old and New Testament and all of it fits together so perfectly. In the New Testament, when we receive Christ and come into the family of God, that's exactly what the New Testament describes it as. One of the, the greatest metaphors in the New Testament of salvation is adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. And this is also a very important theological note to take is that when before we are in Christ, before we have called on the name of Jesus to be saved, we are not children of God. The New Testament is ridiculously clear that the title child of God is reserved for those who are in Christ. Now, before we're a child of God, we are still deeply loved by God. We are deeply loved by God. The Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door, drawing you to him, but we are not children of God until we are in Christ because the metaphor of, uh, for salvation is adoption. And I think it's a perfect metaphor, and especially if you've ever been in the courtroom for an adoption. And I've told this story before, and I talked to my kids and got their permission to tell this, but when I first met Mandy, she was a single mom, and she had three kids, and those are my three oldest kids today. And we, ended, we got married, and a few years later, I was able, through a crazy situation, I was able to adopt them, and it was one of the greatest days of my entire life. I never didn't look at them as, as, as if they weren't my kids. They've always been my kids. But when there was an adoption, there was this deep something that was solidified. And if you've ever been in the courtroom, the reason why, if there's ever a friend of yours, or what, if you ever have the opportunity to go, go for an adoption because the gospel is preached and they don't even mean it because what's happening is the judge is sitting up there and I'm sitting next to the kids with Mandy, the three kids that I'm adopting, Avery, Aiden, and Asher. They're little bitty kids at this time and the judge has them stand up and asks them, do you understand what's happening today? And they say yes. And I, they ask me and I say yes. And they tell the kids, the judge tells the kids on this day after the adoption is over, when I sign these papers, it will be as if the man sitting next to you, your father, me, Dustin, it will be as if he was in the delivery room when you were born. I'm signing his name on your birth certificate. He, it will be as if he was there. And today, 
everything that is his will one day be yours. You are heirs to Dustin. You will receive his inheritance. Everything he has is yours. You are completely his and he is completely yours. He signed the papers, we took photos, and I left and I was like, that guy and the Apostle Paul wrote the exact same thing. Like, the Apostle Paul wrote this beautifully because when we are in Christ, we become completely his and he is completely ours. It's adoption. And that's the picture I wanna give you that Jesus being the everlasting father, when we receive Christ as our savior, we get the father that will never leave, the father that will be there at every call, the father that will first seek us in mercy and not judgment. We get the father that is eternal, the father not just for this life, but forever. And because he's our everlasting father, we also get an everlasting family, the church. So many people, when they receive Christ, there are divisions and different things in family. But that's what's so beautiful about the church is this is a family now and a family forever. So Jesus is the, Jesus is the everlasting father. The second name I wanna spend a little bit more time on is Prince of Peace. So this is the fourth name in the verse, but the second one today, Prince of Peace. When you think about Christmas, peace is a word you see everywhere. It's, it's a word that we desperately need, not just the word, we need peace. We need what it is, and Isaiah 9, 6 again says, and he will be called Prince of Peace. He is the chief of peace. He's in charge of peace. And at the core of every human being that has ever lived, at the core of you, at the core of me, what we desire most, our deepest longing is for one thing, peace, wholeness. At the end of everything we think will give it to us, on the other side of that is the thing that actually will, the Prince of Peace. Because the next job we get, we want peace of mind because of the raise, longevity. I want the peace of the right romantic relationship because they will make me whole and it'll bring peace because I'll no longer be single and searching, that's what we think. And although those things bring peace, there's only one Prince of Peace who can give it to its fullness and forever, right? the prince of peace. And that's how Isaiah describes him through the prophecy coming straight from God. Jesus is the only one able to bridge the gap between our emptiness and his wholeness. He's the only one. So many of us are empty, we feel empty, we go through seasons of emptiness, and we've all done it, you fill it with something, we all have this, this emptiness, this void in our lives because we're born into a sin-cursed world, we're born into a broken world, right? So when we are, there's this void. And the only thing that fills the void is receiving Christ as our Savior, being adopted into the family of God and the Prince of Peace being the one to fill the void and bring peace through every season. It doesn't mean that we don't have human emotion. It doesn't mean we don't go through sadness and pain. But what it does mean is that we have a peace, an underlying peace through it all, through it all. There's a story in Mark chapter four that I, I love, and I've loved this story ever since I was a little kid. And this is the story where Jesus calms the storm. He's on the boat with his disciples. He's asleep um, underneath the ship in the hole, and they are afraid for their lives and they go down and they try to wake Jesus up, they get mad at him, don't you even care, all of that. And we're gonna pick up in verse 39 of Mark chapter four, and it says, he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, 
and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you, seen, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and awe and said to one another, who then is this man that even the wind and sea obey him? Now, I want them to leave, go back up to one more verse, the other section real quick, the slide before. Mm, okay. He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Okay, so they were afraid because of the storm, right? That was the first thing that was attacking them and that made them afraid. Have you still no faith? And, and then it says, and they were filled with great fear and awe. So there's two times they're filled with fear. The first time they're afraid of the wind and the waves. Jesus calms them, those and they're like, and then they realize, whoa, there is a power standing next to us that is greater than the power that was threatening us, I'm afraid all over again. Now they're looking at Jesus going, who is this guy that he can tell the wind and the waves to stop? What's so intriguing about this period of time is there were so many lowercase g false gods out there from the Greco-Roman Empire, the god of the sea, the god of the wind, and the god of all these other things that the disciples, obviously, they're following the god of Israel, but they're around all kinds of people in the Decapolis, the, the surrounding area that worship these other gods, and in one sentence, Jesus reminds them, I am the king of kings, I am the God of gods, I am the prince of peace, and I can put all these other gods, so-called gods, in their place. And they're looking at him going, he's the God of gods. And it caused them to be afraid, but it also says, and awe. So they're learning how to grow in the proper fear of God, not being afraid of him, but being in awe of him. Essentially, why I'm reading you this story is because when you have relationship with the one who can bring peace to physical storms and a physical storm on a sea, a hurricane, when you have relationship with that prince of peace, he can surely calm the storms in my own life, in my own heart, in my own mind. Because he's not just the prince of peace of the physical storms, he's the prince of peace of my internal storms. My individual situations that I have in my life. There's essentially three different kinds of peace that we need involving God. The first form is peace with God. This is salvation. Before we come to Christ, before we are adopted into the family of Christ by calling on the name of Jesus, we are not at peace with God. We are at odds with God because Jesus says he is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. And we, when we are not following the way, God still loves us deeply his Holy Spirit is still drawing you to him, but we are not at peace with God because when we die, we would not spend eternity with God. But then there's this other one, a peace within, and that's what we all need more of, especially in this season. And then there's the peace with others. But what I wanna focus on just for the remaining time that I have is how we receive the peace within for whatever reason, and I know there's different opinions out there and articles and, and different scientists and polls that say different things, but for whatever reason, in the month of December, around Christmas, suicides peak, thoughts of suicide, mental health 
issues skyrocket in this season. Some people think it's strictly due to winter. Other people, because of what Christmas might mean to people in regards to family. I'm not talking about in, in regards to Christ necessarily, but in regards to family, broken relationships. Um, when families get together, that's no longer peaceful. So there's all kinds of things happening. It reminds people of divorce and division and brokenness. But how do we have peace within? Peace within. We have to understand this. Inner peace requires a change of perspective. And here's the change of perspective. Colossians 3.15 in the Amplified Version says, let the peace of Christ, the inner calm of one who walks daily with him, there's so much loaded in that, the inner calm of one who walks daily with him be the controlling factor in your hearts, deciding and settling questions that arise. To this peace indeed you were called as members in one body of believers and be thankful to God Always. I think sometimes, now I've, I've been very open in the past about how my struggles uh, historically with anxiety, depression, and different things in my own life, I'm not afraid to talk about that, but I think sometimes there are, are very real physical things going on that could be causing this, and then there are other things, circumstantial, that there might be a more simple solution to. I've seen it in my life than what we would even want to admit. Because if we're being honest, not all the time, but sometimes we want innately, we may not say it, but innately we want very complicated answers so we can have a long, we can be granted a long, complicated journey and demand grace and understanding from people rather than sometimes, like I said, hear me out, sometimes with mental health, it's a physical thing problem, chemical that you cannot control in a moment, but sometimes, sometimes the answer is so simple, it hurts. And here, what it shows us is one of those answers could simply be, be thankful to God always. Because one thing I know, my entire job, my entire job is people, my whole job. The amount of meetings I have with people, I'll tell you this, by far the most miserable people on earth, other than cowboy fans, are, I'm joking, <laughs> Other, I'm joking, I'm joking, hey, good year this year. Are, I'm a Cowboys fan, are ungrateful people. It really is the truth. And you're all thinking of someone right now. Oh man, yeah, she is so miserable. And she makes me miserable. He is so ungrateful. Try not to do that. Try to think about yourself just for this moment. Is anybody in this room saying that about you? Have we allowed ourselves sometimes to think, I am weighed down with anxiety, a heaviness, a lack of peace? Could it be as simple as, a heart shift of thankfulness toward God? There is a direct correlation between peace and gratitude, 100% in scripture. Philippians 4, six through seven says, do not be anxious about anything. And I, I wanna park there just for one second at the very beginning. This is Paul, the apostle Paul writing, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is in the Bible. Do not be anxious about anything. He, he, he I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush at all in that. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. It's not try hard, pray real hard. It just says, do not. It kind, of takes, it kind of takes you back a little bit, right? This is a command in scripture. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, here's the solution. By prayer and petition, and here it is, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, who is what? The Prince of Peace. This entire section is about peace, how to get it. So again, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with a grateful heart, with an attitude, a posture of thanksgiving, present your request to God, and then it says, and. I mean, that, that's a hinge. That, that's one of these times in scripture God says, 
if you do this, I will do this. I mean, it's very simple. If we go to God in prayer and petition and thanksgiving and we present our request to him, it says the and, the peace of God, the peace of God. This is amazing. I could do a whole sermon series on this one scripture. It's loaded, I love it. I love the Bible. The peace of what? God. It doesn't say the peace you have to conjure. It doesn't say the peace of a new job, the peace of a new relationship, the peace that these things might bring you. This says the peace that will never let you down, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which transcends every situation, every mental health battle, which transcends all of it, will guard your hearts. That word guard is a very strong word in the original language, and it's this picture of a, a guard or multiple guards standing outside on guard, on, standing outside of something on guard. So what this is saying is the peace of God transcends all understanding and will stand guard on the outside of your heart and your mind in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This is huge. Well, that word transcend, what it doesn't say is avoid or get around. It says transcend, like a vehicle. So what it's saying is we'll transcend all understanding. So I'll explain. So the peace of God, if we go to him with a grateful heart, thanksgiving, prayer and petition, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. What impacts our mind? Circumstances, which transcends every loss, every bit of pain, everything we go through in our life that will transcend it. Doesn't avoid it. The peace of God is the vehicle, the sturdy foundation that takes us through it in the midst of our very real human pain. This is not talking about avoiding pain. This is not saying God will rescue you from human emotions, sadness, loss. But what it says is, I'll provide the vehicle that will take you through it and you'll be wondering how you can even get up the next morning, but you do. You're wondering how you can get your kids ready for school, but you do. You're wondering how you can have a hope for tomorrow, but you still do. It's the peace of God that transcends all circumstances and understanding. It doesn't even make sense. How could I get up? How did I, am I even getting up in the morning? I lost a child. I lost a, a spouse, the divorce, the pain, all of the things going on. I don't even know how I'm standing. I do. It's the peace of God that transcends all understanding. C.S. Lewis said this, I love this quote. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. The peace giver, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. It's about getting close, but this is what we do. This is what we do. We'll be like, we'll be over here in our lives and we'll say, hey Jesus, he's over there, hey Jesus, I need your peace in my situation. And then Jesus is over here and he's looking at us going, that sounds like a plan. That's why I came. I'm actually the prince of peace. And then you're standing over here and you're like, well, how do I get it? Because I don't wanna change anything about how I'm living. I still wanna have all the things that are robbing me of my peace. I still wanna do all of them. I wanna keep my schedule. I, I wanna keep all the bad friendships and relationships. I wanna stay with the guy who's doing all these things to me, stay with a girl who's doing all these things to me that are causing me to not have peace. But just, I need you to give me the peace so I can kind of overlook all this stuff. And then Jesus is like, uh, I don't think it works like that. I'm gonna give you everything and it's free, but you, you need to come over here. And we're, we're standing over here going, uh, mm -mm. you need to come over here. Now I wanna be clear, Jesus isn't saying work for peace. 
What he's saying is walk to peace. Because sometimes what we forget is if we wanna get closer to the peace giver, the peacemaker, the prince of peace, we have to turn from the, from the things that are robbing us of the proximity it takes to get close to the prince of peace. Because if we want peace, it's about proximity to the prince of peace. And Jesus has stayed with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But what he's not gonna do is bring peace to a situation that will continually rob you of your peace. He's saying, walk to me. Don't work for it, walk for it. Walk to me. It's all about proximity. He's never searching for perfection. It comes from proximity. John 14, 27 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I leave the gift of peace with you. He's talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross. I leave the gift of peace with you, my peace. Not the kind of fragile peace given by the world, but my perfect peace. Don't yield to fear or be troubled in your hearts. Instead, be courageous. Jesus is saying, when you get my peace, you can be courageous. When you get my peace, I think it's phenomenal to think about how Jesus is talking about a peace that's going to surpass all understanding right before he goes to the cross. They're looking at him thinking, if everything you've told us is true, that you're gonna be arrested and you're gonna die, how do you have this much peace? And Jesus, in his loving kindness, says, when all this happens, you're gonna have access to that level of peace. But it's about proximity. Peace is a gift from Jesus himself, but it's administered by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from Jesus himself, but it's administered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying the peace that carried him through the temptation, the loneliness, the rejection, the relational disappointment, and even the cross is the same peace he gives to us. That's astonishing. I get to inherit the peace that Jesus had that kept him going to the cross? But we don't have to go to a cross. But we do have to carry one. And when we carry one, Jesus is saying, the cross that we pick up daily when we die to ourselves, he can give us the peace to get us through it. You know, I, I, mean, I know I'm a pastor, but I, I go through, I'm human, our family's human. I go through a lot of ups and downs. I go through them. And for me, there's certain practical things I need to do, I know I need to do when I'm in a season where I need peace. First of all, it's proximity. What am I like with my, my daily time with God? Is it where it needs to be? Sometimes life gets busy, takes us off track. First question you need to ask, where's my proximity? Also, there's some other practical things. One of the things my wife and I both do, she has a playlist on her phone and I do too. We call them our peace playlists. I have, I have a picture of mine. You might look at these and be like, I don't like any of those songs, I'm not taking a picture of them. But if you wanna take a picture of my peace playlist, that's my go-to, that's my go-to. The very first one is, you're gonna be okay. Sometimes you just need someone else to sing to you. <laughs> you're gonna be okay, right? This is my peace playlist, why? It's not, I'm not letting the music, it's not music that does it, it's the word of God infused in the music just like worshiping in song in a, in a congregation like we did earlier today, it ushers us into the throne room of God. It ushers us into the reality that God is already here and he surrounds us. My peace playlist. I can't even look back at it when it was up. I can't even look back at it very long because when I go to my peace playlist is when I'm going through a hard time. It just makes me emotional looking at it. Now when I hear those songs, I love them and they help me with peace, but I don't even wanna listen to them when I'm happy. You know what I mean? 
but it will help you in those moments of peace. I have a journal entry. When I was writing this message this week, I have a Bible, a journaling Bible. And two years ago, exactly this week, we were going through a lot. And I had a, a journal entry, and it was one of the hardest seasons of our lives. And this is what I wrote. I, I left a few things out you know, just to keep super personal things out, but I wanted to show you and, and try to be as vulnerable as I can to show you that we all go through deep pain. I wrote this, God, I'm unbelievably exhausted. I'm anxious and I'm experiencing a sorrow I didn't know was possible. I need you, I need your peace. Give me the faith to know you have this situation we're going through in your hands. I'm reading John 16 today about your peace and I need it so badly. My mind is racing and I need the Holy Spirit to give my heart the rest and courage you're speaking of in this passage. I need your words to become my reality. I need peace in Jesus' name. You know, I'll never forget what was going on that day and then today I look back at it and now I'll never forget that God was there the whole time. I'll never forget that he was the Prince of Peace, yeah the vehicle that helped us get through all of that, that transcended what was going on. It's normal stuff that we all go through, but it, it hurts. There's pain in life. The passage I was journaling next to is this, John, 6, John 16, 33. And everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me, this is Jesus talking, the peace which is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous, for I have conquered the world. The world that feels like it's conquering you, just take heart, I've already conquered it. And Jesus is saying, proximity, I'm the Prince of Peace. When we think about proximity, I can't think any of any better way for us to draw near to God than to close service today with taking communion. And today, if, if you have your communion cup with you, you can take it, and in a, mom, in a moment, we'll take it together. Just hold it for a second, don't take it, hold it. And we'll take the communion together in a moment. I wanna read to you a section of the book of Matthew when Jesus has his disciples at the Last Supper, and they're about to take the communion, and I wanna read, read this to you really quick. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took, a, uh, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Very quickly, the history of the Last Supper, communion, when we take it today, goes all the way back deep into the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. When the Israelites were held captive in Egypt, the 10th plague was the plague of the, um, the, the death angel coming into Egypt and killing the firstborn. But God spoke to Moses ahead of time and said, the death angel will pass over, that's where we get the Passover meal from, will pass over anyone who has sacrificed a lamb and taken the blood of a lamb and put the blood of the lamb above the doorpost. That blood will be the sign that you are with God and the death angel will pass over. That's why the Israelites, that's why Jewish people today take the Passover meal. Jesus being the new covenant, the fulfillment of all things old, 
that day, when he taking the Lord's Supper, teaches them that now he is the fulfillment of the Passover, so we no longer take Passover, we take communion. Because Jesus, that day at the Last Supper, if you notice in the story, there was not a lamb, and lamb was a part of the Passover meal. There was just the bread, which was normal, the, the cup, the wine, which was normal, but there was no lamb. The disciples would have been asking Jesus, where's the lamb? But Jesus would have said, "If you wait a second and I'll tell you. And Jesus, through telling them what communion was, said, there will no longer be a lamb on the table because the lamb is going to the cross. The blood of the lamb now covers all of those who call on the name of Jesus. And as the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament on the doorpost covered those in a home, now the blood of Jesus being spilled on the cross and those of us that call on his name, the death angel passes over and we live for eternity with Jesus. That's where communion is and that's why it's such an, a deeply important part of the Christian faith. I, I tell you that just so you can, I love to know context and why we do things. But when you picture this image of them being at the table that day with Jesus, I love the image because Jesus is giving this symbolic meal, communion, talking about salvation and offering it through what he was about to do on the cross, this symbol of what was to come. And think about who was at the table because there's people in this room where you're thinking, ay, 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 you don't know what I've done. As good as it sounds to call in Jesus' name, I am just not the, per I don't deserve to even be in this room. I was surprised that God even let me walk in here today. I, I, I'm not, I can't even guarantee I won't make mistakes in the future, but I don't, I'm, I don't feel worthy to be at the table. But let me tell you who was at the table that day when Jesus extends this meal. Judas was at the table. Jesus knew what Judas would do, and he offered it to him. He knew what Peter would do, Peter, the rock that the church would be built on, denied Jesus three times, abandoned Jesus. He knew what the other disciples would do. They would run at the first sign of danger, but he offered it to them. Because Jesus was teaching a principle that day that salvation, when we call in the name of Jesus, covers the past and anticipates the future. Jesus knows what you will do in the future, but when we call on his name today, the blood of the lamb is big enough and good enough. Barbara Brown Taylor said this about this topic. When Jesus holds up the cup and offers it, offers what is in it as the fluid of forgiveness, he is not talking to people with a short list of minor sins. He is talking to people who will turn him in, who will scatter to the four winds at the first sign of trouble, who will swear they never knew him. He is talking to people who should have been his best friends on earth who turn out not to have a loyal bone in their bodies. And he is forgiving them ahead of time as surely as if he had said, I know who you are, I know you will not be innocent of the blood of this cup, but I will not let that come between us. Let my life become your life through the blood of this covenant. When we take communion today, in a moment I'm gonna pray over communion, but before I do, while I pray for communion, I'm also going to include in that prayer anyone today who wants to receive Christ as your savior. Whatever your past is, He's saying you're worthy to sit at the table. We've all fallen short, but you're worthy to sit at the table. There's no better time to come to Christ than today right now. There's no better time. No matter what you've been going through, he's drawn you here today by his Holy Spirit to hear these words. He is offering forgiveness and a peace that transcends all understanding. So before we pray over the communion, I'm not gonna ask you guys to bow your heads or even close your eyes, but with every head up and every eye open. 
On the count of three, if you're in here today and you would like to receive Christ as your savior, I'm not gonna embarrass you in any way. I'm not gonna have you come to the front or have you stand, but just by the showing of hands, when I count to three, if you just raise your hand, put it up and right back down, it's, the raising of a hand doesn't save you. I just wanna see who I'm praying for today. And I just think there's something about a physical action that demonstrates what's going on inside. And I think it's a faith step. But if that's you and you would like to be included in this prayer to join us in communion today, the communion of believers, just on the count of three, if you would raise your hand right where you're at. One, two, three, right where you're at. Thank you, thank you guys. Yeah, give them a round of applause. Thank you, thank you. Anybody else over here that I didn't see? Thank you guys. Greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. What I love about this moment is it's young, it's old, it's children, all different kinds of people. You're welcome at the table. If you would take the elements today in the cup as we close today, as I pray over the elements, I'm also gonna pray over all of you who raised your hand, and it's not my prayer who saves you, that saves you, it's a declaration from your own heart. So as I pray, those of you that raised a hand, there just has to be a calling on Jesus' name, a repentance of sin, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging that without him doing what he did on the cross, my sin was not, would not be covered. So we're gonna call on the name of Jesus knowing he went to the cross so I didn't have to. The blood that was spilled covers my sins. And when I invite him to be my Lord and Savior, my life changes forever and my eternal home is secure. I'm gonna pray and when I'm done praying, we can take the bread, I'll guide us, and then we'll take the cup. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, I pray over every person in this room, those that raise their hands. God, you see their hands, but more importantly, you see their hearts. Right now in this moment, as they join the family of God, being adopted into your family, experiencing you as the everlasting father, the prince of peace today. You are the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. Jesus, come into our lives. Thank you for doing what you did on the cross for us. With love today, we know you receive us. And today we will take these elements in remembrance of you. You said, do this in remembrance of me because you knew we might forget. So we bless the bread today and we bless the cup because of your broken body and the blood that was spilled, we can go to you for healing and for ultimate healing through salvation. We thank you, bless it, bless us. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray.